I'd like to read with us in our scripture reading. We're going to take a reading from the book of Philippians chapter 2. The book of Philippians chapter 2. And we'll begin reading in verse 5. And um, before we begin, I'll make just a brief preliminary comment. Um, As we come today to observe this ordinance as a church... um, The thought crossed my mind as we were singing, um, what is it intended to do? What is it intended to do? And um, I'm not going to preach on that this morning, but I want to make a couple comments about that before we begin on the message the Lord has placed upon my heart. Um, When we gather in the house of the Lord and we sing and, and listen to the preaching, certainly it can have a multitude of purposes and um, at times we're to comfort one another and exhort one another and rebuke one another and there's all various reasons the scriptures reveal that we gather together. Uh, But I think at the heart of all of those, regardless of what we are doing, is that we gather in hopes that whatever we do, our hearts and attitudes will be directed to the Lord. Very often in services like these, I find that people become, perhaps the deacons are nervous this morning, thinking about what if we mess up passing things out, or what if we trip and fall and things spill. And um, certainly as as one trying to lead this ordinance, um, that used to consume my mind and making sure every detail was just perfect. And... uh, I don't really worry or care about that much anymore. Um, I'm certain I've gotten things out of order before. I've uh, forgot to pray before, passing something out before, um, a number of things. Part of the reason is because my heart was in the right place. My heart was thinking on things above and the deep gratitude of what Christ has done. And this morning as we gather to remember His sacrifice, um, I hope as we go through the message, as we go through this ordinance, that your mind will be continually brought back to what He has done for us. Um, Not generally, but specifically. Through His death, what He did. What he did to your sin. Um, I'm going to stop with that this morning. We're going to read from the book of Philippians chapter 2. We're going to begin our reading in verse 5 and read down to verse 11 of our scripture reading. I'm, I'm quite confident I've probably read this before here, but I feel inclined to do it again this morning. It says this, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The title of our message this morning, drawn from these scriptures, and we'll likely turn to a number of other scriptures today, um, is Christ became sin. Christ became sin. What this scripture, what Paul does here, as you can no doubt tell, is that he begins with Jesus and this progression of humility that Jesus goes through. He begins with him as being in the form of God. And then he ends a short snippet by saying he subjected himself even to the death of the cross. And so on one hand, he gives him a name and a nature above anything that can be comprehended, and that is God. And he concludes that short section, bringing him as low as one could ever be brought to a torturous death. This morning we want to talk about some of the progression of Christ's humility. Or in other words... Going from being exalted to abased. Before we do that, the experience came to my own mind of my own when I traveled to Africa for the first time and trying to think as a 19-year-old young man what I would anticipate coming and trying to take the scriptures and the way that Jesus was and the way that He recommends that we be when we try and spread the gospel, one of the things that came to my mind was His incarnation. That Jesus came and became like us. And He advocates in the book of Acts that we ought to, in other places in the Scriptures, that we ought to, when we are trying to minister to people, that in one sense become as much like them as is righteous and fitting to do so. That we don't want to be exalted, that we don't want to be above them, speaking down to them, but as much as we are able to get on the same wavelength as people, as Paul was, that when he was in Rome, he would become a Roman. When he was a Greek, he would become a Grecian. When things were offensive because of people's culture, he did without things so that those things might not become a stumbling block to the people he was ministering to. And so in preparation for going there, I took no extra American food and I prepared myself to say, I am going over this two-week period To become as much as possible an African. The concept sounds real good. But the reality is much different than the concept. Because suddenly when they're placing food before me. 
Suddenly when it's the middle of the night and it's been 115 degrees outside during the day and there's no air conditioning and yet I insisted, I don't want to stay in a hotel that's above you. I want to stay where you're at and then it's 80 or 90 degrees in that room and I can't sleep. Day after day after day, suddenly I begin to yearn not to be one of them. And by the end of the trip, I wasn't. I couldn't do it. And I say that somewhat shamefully. At times they would set food before me and I didn't eat for Brother Tom Alande still. The missionary over there still teases me about it. I didn't eat for about four days. Anything except the Starburst I brought for those kids. I brought Starburst to give the kids. The kids didn't get a lot of those. I took most of them because I just couldn't handle the diet there. I say all that to say that it was It was humbling. And the thought that crossed my mind the longer I was there and as the clock was counting down to zero to where I could come home, my eagerness to come home just continued to increase and continued to increase. I just couldn't wait. And then the thought crossed my mind two or three days before I left. I get to leave and they have to stay. And it just broke me. I get to escape, in one sense, the poverty and the deprivation. And they don't. And at times, what it has done to me over the years is just not created guilt, but gratitude for God's natural blessings to me. Here... I say all that to say, I was, taking, I was attempting to take upon myself a different culture. But I want to understand something about what Jesus does in his condescension. In one way you could say, Brother Brad condescended to a lowlier state of living in a lowlier culture. But listen, Jesus did not condescend within his own nature to just a baser way of experiencing things as a God or as God. Jesus took upon himself an entirely new nature in his condescension. All the limitless glory and experience that he had in the form of God, he abandoned in his incarnation. Imagine if you were to take, I guess, as good of a comparison as I can think of as if you were to go from being in the form of a human to being in the form of a little bug that crawls on animal manure. And even that condescension does not fully express The glory that Christ had before his incarnation down to the sinful place that he came to. The gap is even greater for Christ. 
We studied it in the book of John whenever we were talking on Wednesday night. John chapter 17, verse 5. Jesus is praying to the Father right before he goes to all the crucifixion and all that experience. And he prays that God would reestablish or re, uh, reinstitute the glory which had been his before the incarnation. He said, I am coming to you that I might receive the glory that I once had. And so for as long and many numbers as you can come up with in eternity past, Christ was exalted and glorified and yet chose of his own accord to humble himself and to come in the form and nature of mankind. To be confined, to have omnipotence surrendered and be confined by human weakness. To consider for a moment whenever those men were upon the boat, there Jesus was and he would grow weary and tired, a feeling not natural to God. And yet Christ, by just taking on the form and nature that we had, was a great, perhaps the greatest condescension was just him coming in the first place. But he didn't stop with just coming. Like if we explored and if the Holy Spirit would enlighten us to see. Perhaps in heaven that is part of what will fuel our praise. Is that then we will see the glory that he had and left to come here. Here. Christ. It says this in verse 6. The translation is, is really poor in verse 6 in the King James Version. Here's what it should say. Who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So think of it like this. Many of you are professionals and you've perhaps been promoted in some fashion. And there may be other people that are on your same level of promotion. Now imagine if you voluntarily humbled yourself beneath them because the objective that you were trying to accomplish, it was not worthy to try to grasp and hold on to the standing that you once had. This is saying... Jesus, in consideration of the redemption of mankind, abandoned his place in the form of God or having this exalted nature or power as God. He emptied himself of that and did not begrudge having to abandon that in order to come in sinful flesh. I say that to say, let's consider the humility of Christ in coming in the flesh. But then the Bible tells us even more of what Christ, as he continues to walk, the author does, continues to walk down the scale of humility. He didn't just come into the world. But what he wanted was people to want him for what could not be seen. Like one thing that I want as a church, us to be, Vigilant about. I don't want this 
to be appealing to the flesh just to get people to come. As a minister of the gospel, I've had to be humbled many times and cognizant of what's the motivation in the presentation style that you have. Is it so that people will be appealed to and come into the house of God? Is it to draw a big crowd? What is the intent of your heart in bringing the message of the gospel? Because it matters. Jesus came into this world voluntarily, but did not come decorated with the pageantry of a king. Because he did not want the appeal to be his oratory or his strength or the way that he appeared before people. He wanted to people to hear the message of the gospel and be reconciled to God. And so he, un, he, he willingly forfeited whatever advantages that he could in coming in the flesh. And so the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 8, that he became poor that we might be rich. That in his poverty, we might be made rich. And so we consider Jesus there coming into the world. You know, when we left Indiana, this just came to my mind, when we left Indiana, um, one of the fears, and I've shared this with the church before, one of the fears was, you know, all of our people were there, all the family structure and familiarity of the community and all that was there. And then we were moving somewhere and we hoped it would be there, but we didn't know. And that was probably the greatest fear we had. You know, Jesus, he came to this young girl. We don't know her age, but we know that she was probably really young. And this man that did not inherit a large sum of money by any account, that didn't have any prestige or honor in a worldly sense, And God arranged the situation as such that not only did he come to paupers, but even the complicated situation that he came into, that his birth was at a time where his parents were forced immediately to move from their home to meet the demands of the government. And so his parents were completely at the time of his birth or at the time that Mary was carrying him. They were completely deprived of any convenience or or comfort or known factors what would be going on. They weren't at home. They didn't have a known midwife that came to deliver the child. No, it was at the time that Jesus was to give birth that they were required to go to Bethlehem. And there they went. And can you imagine carrying a child at eight or or nine months, and you're going to a place that perhaps that you have never been, and you're going to have all these experiences deprived from the infrastructures of comfort that you've grown so accustomed to, and yet those are the people that Jesus was born to at the time and situation that Jesus came into. He deprived himself. He deprived his parents of having anything but dependence on the Father. And then his parents were 
subject to persecution. And they had to flee. Like, imagine the trauma of that. Jesus didn't grow up in a little quaint town with all neighbors that knew each other. He wasn't born into that. He was born at a time of political upheaval. I've often thought of that. Of, you know, when a baby comes into the world, they come in crying because the, the surroundings are so, un, they're so unaccustomed to and the surroundings that they're so warm and they're, 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 they're cared for and they're comforted in the womb and then they come out and it's not as nice as it is in the womb. But what about children who are born into the world in the middle of chaos and upheaval and death and war? That's Jesus coming into that. The text tells us he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So then Jesus came, and I, and I mention this often, I don't even know why it's so incredible to me, but it is it's just something that's incredible about Jesus. He knew the eternal truth of God for 30 years and never talked. I don't know why that just amazes me. I think part of it is because when I'm right about something or when I think I'm right about something, I got to tell you it, right? It's no doubt probably the pride inside of me that, hey, if I hear something wrong or distorted, I've just got to correct you is what the pride within says. And yet imagine if we studied on Wednesday nights, Jesus every year for 30 years, three times a year at least, going to Jerusalem for all the, the three required feasts that males were going into. And he goes into the temple every single year and he sees perversion, distortion. He sees the man who is symbolic of him, the high priest, not genuinely interceding for the people Not humble and approachable and loving, but exalted and proud and looking down with condescending eyes. And yet that man was merely a shadow of him, the great true high priest who would enter the holies of holies in heaven. In just a few years, there he would stand before God, not with a veil separating him, but in the presence of the almighty God to offer a true, greater atonement for sin. And yet as he is growing, and he is 10 and 15 and 20 and 25 years old, and he continues to walk, and he sees the perversion of all these feasts. He sees the perversion of the word of God. He sees the distortion of the of the prophets and the message of the prophets and there Jesus remains silent until the father's appointed time why because he was trying to accomplish what was necessary for your and my salvation and so he kept his mouth shut day after day after day and I think, man, what, what pain that must have been. You know? Like, how, 
painful must it be to love people so deeply and to see them so caught up in heresy and deception and to see the pain that it was that, that it was creating in their lives and the desire no doubt to share with them and yet God was not ready for the proper time had not come so how many nights was he awake praying interceding asking the father please let me speak it please let me tell it That's all hypothetical. That's all just in my mind. But I imagine that it was that way some days. Why did he do that? Because he was a servant. He was a servant. What is it about mankind that from our very beginning, we just like to have people beneath us, you know, serving us? And yet Jesus tells us in John 13... Want to, if you ever want to be humbled, you think you're getting a little, little too prideful, go read John 13. I just don't know what else could humble a person more than John 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Right after they've been boasting, seems to me at least, it's not in that gospel, it's one of the other ones, but it seems like it's right before that, that Jesus is, they're boasting with one another, asking questions, you know, who's going to be the greatest? And then Jesus responds with this. I mean, like, God is doing that to you. I don't have a problem with this, so don't take it this way. Uh, going through the airport, shoe shining. I'm sure some of you may have even done it before. That's perfectly fine. Nothing wrong with it. It's always just felt weird to me. I don't know why. But here a man is... Usually sitting in a business suit, and his feet is down, and this man is just scrubbing his shoes. And it's always made me uncomfortable. Nothing wrong with it. It's just always made me uncomfortable. Or when you get around somebody who is clearly doesn't have the same money or ability to provide for themselves and I've always felt this compulsion to make sure they know I'm not better than you. I may look like this. I'm not better than you. Trust me, I'm not better than you. That's an impulse. You know what's never been my impulse? To tell the guy that's shining shoes to get up there so that I could shine his. And that's what Jesus did. He didn't just come and say, I'll be on the same level. But he came to those whom God had called to serve and said, let me serve you. Isn't it interesting that in verse 5, the way this text begins, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So should there be any boundaries to our humility and condescension? That's a fair question. But Jesus didn't stop there. Because it then says that he humbled himself even to death. So let's try to work through this for just a moment. The Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. 
So as far as I can understand it, and I'd be happy to talk and somebody correct me about this because I haven't worked this all out in my understanding yet. I don't know that it's possible to die without sin. Is it even possible to die without sin? So Jesus came into the world and he lived years and years and years perfect without even the ability as far as I can understand it to even die because he was perfect. And so if he was going to die in the place of the people, then he must sin. But he's God, thus he cannot sin. Because to sin is to transgress the law. Well, the law is an immutable part of God. So God can't violate himself, his own character. He is who and what he is. And so Jesus couldn't sin. Thus, he couldn't die, right? Unless Christ became sin for us. In other words, unless he took your sin and your sin was accredited or imputed to him. And so that's what Jesus does. So when it says here that he humbled himself even to death, inherent or implicit in that statement is that Jesus became sin for you and I. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to turn there real quick because I won't quote it right. It's not coming to my mind. It says this, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So there, I think it happened in the garden. Whether it happened at some other point in the next 12 hours is up to you. At some point, the sins of mankind were accredited to him. Now, don't just think of it as like, I had a backpack out here earlier. Don't think of it as just like, he went and he put a backpack on and now he's got a weight that's not sufficient to express Christ taking on our sins. Because the Bible also says at one point that he despised the shame of our sin. So in what I don't even know how to describe the backpack part of just saying he took the burden of it. But no, he also took the the reputation, the stigma, the pain that, is, that comes from sin, as well as the sin itself. He took it upon himself and received the just penalty as though he himself had committed those sins. He took ownership in one sense of the word for those things and thus experienced the shame. So when men and women were walking by and ridiculing him, when the legal system declared him guilty, there was a shame attached to that. Have you ever been falsely accused of something? I have found that being falsely accused of something is more painful than being accurately accused of something. 
Because the shame is natural when you've done something wrong. And you know there's something in your mind that says, I deserve this. This shame is a just penalty for what I have done. But when you have been falsely accused of something and you know you're innocent and you know as word and rumor spreads of what you said or what you did and yet you don't even know all the places it's going and the the reactions of people's hearts that they're having and the conversations that they're having and the preparation to either be around you or not be around you, whatever those things You don't know those things. And so the pain and the shame of it is magnified. On every account, Christ was falsely accused for what you did, for what I did. And he took it. Isn't that a staggering response when he goes to Herod and just one after another, the venom is spitting from these false accusers. And then from all these other men, venom is just being just, just launched at Christ. And the Bible says, he opened not his mouth. He accepted it. The shame of the false accusations that were made. And he was sentenced to death. So he took upon himself sin that he might be able to die. Then he took upon himself the shame of sin that he might be sentenced to die. And then it gets to the very last part of this text, or this last part of this description. And it says, even the death of the cross. It tries to get us to the lowest rung on the ladder. In other words, God didn't just come willing to die. God came and died the most torturous way a man can. And in so doing, the Bible says that God has highly exalted him. There's a spiritual rule that exists. That which goes up must come down. So know this. If you ever get angry at people's pride, let this calm your heart. He who goes up will come down. God will see to it. The Bible says the spiritual principle, he that exalted himself will be abased. But also know the opposite is true. He who humbleth himself shall be exalted. And when we consider that in light of Christ becoming our sin, has anyone ever humbled themselves greater than Jesus Christ? Not even close and he did it voluntarily humbled himself that's why we got to be careful when we get prideful because we could be guilty of stealing praise and glory that belongs to him 
I don't want praise and glory. You know, it's always been ironic to me when people praise preachers. Like, I'm just talking about it. I didn't do it. Jesus did it. Right? No matter how articulate a man becomes, no matter how much that he is used by the Holy Spirit to articulate the message of the gospel, he's just talking about something that a man actually did. Let's praise the man who did it. Not the man who just talked about it. Listen, the praise of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. I don't even know what that means. What is under the earth? I don't know. Maybe he's just talking about the ground. Maybe he's talking about dead people. That perhaps could be the case. But what I was saying is this. There's going to come a point where Christ is exalted. Okay? And you and I probably both, when we think about the gathering of that great nations of people after the great day of judgment, we likely think of all human beings that have been saved by God's grace. But let me tell you this. They're not going to be the only ones that bow in his presence in heaven. There's going to come a point where those messengers that God created to be messengers to and fro from heaven down to earth before us, there's going to come a point perhaps where those lost souls who don't know God and every demon that has ever existed that has tried to persuade men, who has tried to deceive men, there's going to come a point where all of us stand before Jesus Christ and listen to me, we will bow before him. There will not be people, attendants at the throne, standing next to him, carrying out the the duties. No, we will all creatures bow. It says the knee will bow. Then what does it say? The tongue will confess. Again, I don't think it's impulse. That's just my speculation. I don't think like for the demons or the lost people, that God is going to have to force them to cry out that he's Lord. I think the awe and the righteousness and the glory that is going to surround Jesus Christ will be so unlike anything you and I could possibly comprehend that even spiritual beings will be compelled to bow and say, He is Lord. He is God, may his name ever be praised for all of eternity. The name of Jesus. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then what will that do? All of this will be going on. And it says this, to the glory of God the Father. Or in other words, just like after the sixth day or seventh day of creation, God looked at all he had made and said, this is good. After it's all over and all created beings are crying out glory and praise and holy, holy, holy is the name of Jesus. The Father will be pleased. The name of Jesus is a name worth exalting this morning. And as we gather, 
and we partake of this wonderful ordinance, we remember that at the heart of our eternal salvation was a cost. And that cost, the currency of that cost, was in the humility of our God, who humbled himself beyond comprehension that he might provide for us the opportunity to be saved. And so we gather, and what do we think about as we gather here in just a moment? We think about our sin, don't we? We ought to think about our sin. Not generally think about your sin specifically. Think about the sins that define you. Because you can't go, you can't appreciate the blessings of Christ until you understand the depth of what he's done. And you can't understand the depth of what he's done until you recognize the blackness of our sin. I think about my sin. I think about all the apologies that I give to God. Repenting for the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over, day after day, year after year. I, and, and very often it's super genuine. Like I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying it's a genuine. I'm, 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 here I am again, Lord, with the same thing. And the frequency only magnifies the shame. And yet God, here's the next thing that comes to my mind. I don't have to carry that. I don't have to carry that. Because you took the shame for me. And you nailed it to your cross. And that nailing to your cross included great suffering and pain. And this bread that I take is a reflection of every scourge that laid upon your delicate, perfect skin and ripped it off. And the blood that dropped upon the ground and stained that cement as I take this fruit of the vine. Thank you. That I can just partake in this symbol with ever having to experience the reality that you did. And listen, friends, that's just the physical. Because perhaps the greatest, and I'm going to close, is that in that taking on of our sin, he was separated from the Father. Fellowship, close, there was a brokenness that occurred. And the pain from that brokenness, think of the moment that you learn that a loved one has died. Your heart is broken. Painful. The moment you watch them take their last breath and you wept and the pain began to press upon you. Christ suffered that being separated from the Father. And in this, I remember that. I remember what he did. And I say, as Sincerely as I can. Lord, I appreciate it. Listen, if you don't take the Lord's Supper, we at this church, we ask that you're only a church member can take the Lord's Supper. I hope you're not offended by that. If you have questions about it, I'd be happy to sit and talk with you about it. 
not being able to take part in the Lord's ordinances is a loss to the Christian life. It is. I'm not going to exhort you this morning. I'm not going to talk all about it. All I'm going to say is, I cherish this. I don't want to miss it. Christ has commanded me to do it. And in so doing, there's something about physically doing something that connects to us inwardly. Like I can speak all day long abstractly, but there's something about crunching that bread amongst my teeth that makes me think of the brokenness of his flesh. This morning, I appreciate your attention today. I pray that your heart and mind was taken a little bit closer to the Lord's great sacrifice and what he's done for us today.